You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today we have the honor of discussing Chandra Kukathas's latest book, Immigration and Freedom, published with Princeton University Press. Immigration is often seen as a danger to Western liberal democracies because it threatens to undermine their fundamental values most notably freedom and national self-determination. In this book, however, Chandran argues that the greater threat comes not from immigration, but from immigration control, which impacts not only the freedoms of immigrants, but of everyone. Dr. Chandran Kukathas is the Dean and Lee Kong Chen Chair Professor of Political Science at the School of Social Sciences at Singapore Management University. He is a highly regarded political theorist, best known for his contributions to multiculturalism and to the understanding and assessment of Hayek's political philosophy. Chandran is a prolific writer and has published extensively in leading academic journals and presses, as well as other outlets. We are also joined by an impressive panel of scholars that will comment on the book. Dr. Ryan Muldoon, is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Buffalo. His primary research investigates how we can turn the challenge of increasing diversity into a resource to be tapped for our mutual benefit. Specifically, he investigates how diversity can lead to more just societies, to an increase in the amount and quality of scientific production and greater wealth. He was also a core author of the 2015 World Development Report at the World Bank. Dr. Lisa Schuster is a reader in sociology at the City University of London and has spent most of the past decade conducting fieldwork in Afghanistan, where she was based at the Afghanistan Center at Kabul University. She prepares expert reports on Afghanistan for immigration tribunals in the UK and across Europe and contributes to debates on migration in a number of countries. Dr. Boss Vandervossen is an associate professor in the Smith Institute for Political Economy and Philosophy, as well as in the philosophy department at Chapman University. His research focuses on questions of political philosophy, primarily of political economy, global justice, and the Lockean theory of property rights. He also writes about immigration and open borders. We will begin with Chandran providing an overview, kicking off the discussion of the book, and then follow with comments from Ryan, Lisa, and Boss. Chandran, please begin. Well, firstly, thank you very much, uh, <coughs> Stephanie, for the introduction, and uh, to Malia for organizing things, and of course, to the Mercatus Center for hosting me. <clears throat> and of course, I'm, I'm very grateful to my fellow panelists for taking the trouble, not only to, to read the book, but to uh, to come here and, and talk about it. And I look, look forward to the to the conversation, probably more to the conversation than uh, to my presentation. Uh, so I'll try to keep it reasonably brief, but understanding that many people who tune into the podcast may not have uh, yet read the book, um, I will try to um, give a reasonably accurate uh, thumbnail sketch 
of the of the main arguments. And I should say that at the outset that I, I began with a plan to write a book uh, in defense of, uh, of open borders and to think about the immigration question, not only from the perspective of uh, the host society, but in fact, to think about it from the perspective of the, the immigrant. But as I started to, uh, to work on the, the book, I, I had, a, had a change of heart, not because I'm no longer interested in the claims of uh, immigrants, but really because it started to become apparent to me that there was an aspect to the question that had been uh, underexplored, if perhaps not explored at all. And that is the, the impact of attempts to control immigration on host societies, and more broadly, the, the world in general, but in particular for the, for the host or otherwise welcoming society when it comes to immigration. And what struck me was the extent to which the attempts to control immigration, which on the whole have always met with mixed success, um, the attempt to control immigration ends up having much greater um, effects on a whole range of uh, things than I think have, have been, has, has been properly appreciated. So the, the book is called Immigration and Freedom because I ended up focusing on the impact of immigration control or attempts at immigration control on individual freedom. Now, um, as it turns out, of course, immigration and freedom are both very, very complex uh, concepts. And I spent quite a lot of time talking about both those things. So let me say at the outset that when I talk about freedom, I, I don't actually offer a definition of this at the outset, but hope that by the end of the book, you'll have a much deeper appreciation of how we should understand freedom. So <clears throat> a, a part of the, pro, uh, of the purpose of the book not originally intended was to explore this uh, this very notion, but it starts with uh, the question of immigration because that was the that was the motivation a concern about um, would be immigrants. So how does the the argument unfold? So basically, in the book, I, I divide the examination of the question into two parts. In the first part, what I try to do is explain why immigration control is a concern if one cares about certain fundamental, broadly speaking, liberal democratic values. And preeminent among these are freedom and equality. And I try to show that attempts to control immigrants, immigration, um, outsiders, ultimately cannot be accomplished without controlling insiders, residents, and citizens as well. And this means affecting and shaping the institutions within a society that have surprising, unanticipated, and in many respects, undesirable consequences, if one cares about basic liberal democratic values. And the reason I start from this perspective is that it's a very common argument, I think, made by those who are wary of immigration and immigrants, that immigration must be controlled in order to protect liberal democratic values. And I'm focusing pretty much on the, the countries of the, uh, of the liberal democratic West, um, even though immigration control, it's not uh, solely a concern of these countries. This is where my focus lies. And so I want to say to those people who are concerned about the impact of immigration on fundamental values that underpin their societies, I want to say to them, 
have you considered the impact of immigration control on those very values that you profess, uh, those values that you want to be concerned about? So the first part of the book tries to show why this is a concern. The second part of the book then considers a number of objections that might be made to my thesis. In particular, because people might say in the end, yes, you have a point, but nonetheless, it's worth controlling immigration. We're trying to, because if we don't, we will suffer either economically, or we'll see our society's culture undermined, or we'll lose our capacity as a nation to determine our future for ourselves. And what I try to show in the second half of the book is that none of these arguments really hold up. Um, so the last three chapters of, of the book end up um, examining these arguments more closely, and then I conclude with a larger statement about freedom. So that sketch of the outline of the book done, let me turn to the first part where I try to put the case for thinking about immigration control as something about which we should be wary or concerned because of its impact on individual freedom and on individual equality. I think values that are central to any uh, liberal democratic society. And here, what I want to say to start with is that to understand this point, we have to begin by thinking about actually what it is that we understand by immigration and by the idea of an immigrant, because it's all too often assumed that, uh, that these terms are well understood. And the point that I want to make is that it's actually not well understood to the extent that uh, many people assume that there is an obvious category of people who might be called natives or nationals, uh, and there's another category of people who are immigrants or would be immigrants. And I think a you know, careful examination of the historical record as well as the conceptual underpinning of these terms and the, the legal status of people who are classified as immigrants or nationals brings us very, very quickly to the, uh, to the conclusion that there's a certain arbitrariness about the distinction that's made between immigrants and natives. In fact, if one wants to make the argument that the reason to control immigration and immigrants or would-be immigrants is to protect the interests of natives or nationals, the problem is that the definition of natives and nationals on the one hand and immigrants uh, on the other is actually to a large extent driven by the need to distinguish these two categories for the purpose of immigration control. At the outset, one has to decide who is in and who is out, but it's not as if it's clear from the outset who is actually justifiably to be regarded as a native and who is not, who is someone who has to seek permission to enter a society or a country or cross a boundary and who does not. So the very first step in immigration control, I suggest, is actually not border control or even the establishment uh, of borders, and we'll come back to this. The first step is actually classification. We decide who is an immigrant and who is not, or who is a native and who is not. But this raises an obvious problem, and that is that who is the we who's deciding? Uh, there isn't an obvious we. So 
someone gets to decide this, um, some combination of uh, people, but that in itself is an enormously um, tricky problem to, um, to resolve if one's trying to figure out who has this legitimate right, because in politics, the people who get to make these decisions are those on the whole who are more politically powerful. And they are the ones who have the right to include or to, or to exclude. So the first step in immigration control is um, deciding how to classify people. And historically, we have, in all the countries of the developed West, moved back and forth between classifying people into categories um, and making them, in some cases, natives, and in other cases, not, depending on the mood of the time. Um, there were times when American women uh, lost their nationality if they married foreign nationals. Um, there were times when British women going up to 1983 could not pass on their nationality to their children because the nationality laws did not permit them to. It's not a long time ago. Um, there are all kinds of circumstances in which people have simply been denied the right of nationality uh, at one point in time and then been granted it on another. This has led to an enormous amount of misclassification, including the American case, a million people being deported, uh, even though they were in fact US citizens between 1930 and uh, 2000. Two, two million people were deported, a million of them uh, wrongfully because they were not uh, actually non-citizens. Of course, of the other one million, Quite a few were probably misdeported as well, but we won't uh, go into that here. So the first step is classification. And the point I try to make in the book is that this um, classification politicizes the immigration process to the disadvantage of um, all kinds of people, but not necessarily the same people. Sometimes it dis disadvantages people on the basis of race. Sometimes it disadvantages them on the basis of their place of birth, sometimes it disadvantages them on the basis of their gender. Uh, and this is something that we have to recognize continues. It hasn't stopped. It's an ongoing process because classification is also not something that's settled. Nationality is not something that's settled. So, but given that, um, I think there are other um, further consequences um, for the impact of uh, immigration control on human freedom in societies that try to prevent people from moving, that try to prevent people from associating one with another um, across national boundaries. The most obvious way to think about it is that if you wish to control the interaction of people who are otherwise um, regarded as standing on opposite sides of a particular boundary or across two different categories, is that you have to distinguish them. And in order to do so, you have to control not just those who are on the outside, but also those on the inside. There are a couple of reasons for this. One is that you simply have to control them in order to classify them. That's the first thing. But the other thing is that once you've classified them and people are um, in some cases excluded, but in other cases allowed to come in and associate, 
what you really want to do if you want to control immigration is not so much to stop people from entering, because most countries want tourists, they want exchange scholars, they want sports people to come across the boundary. What they want to do is control how long people stay and what they do while they're in the society. And this means for much of it controlling the labor market. Now, in order to do this, this means that you've got to regulate your own society and your own population, whether it's resident or, um, or citizenry. Uh, and this means that any controls that you exert in order to maintain a regime of, uh, of control rebounds uh, onto your own citizens. They will be the ones who are monitored. They will be the ones who are stopped in search. They will be the ones who will be denied permission to, to, um, to rent a property or to open a bank account, at least until such time as their identities are established. And aside from the fact that mistakes will often be made, the extent to which um, this impinges on the freedom of uh, citizens should not be exaggerated. Um, to take just the most dramatic example, every year, thousands uh, of people in the United States and in Europe, as well as in other parts of the world, are wrongfully detained uh, in immigration detention centers because their identities have yet to be um, established. Some of them stay there for days, some of them for weeks, some of them even for years. Uh, so it does impact enormously on the, uh, the lives of citizens, but it also impacts on those who aren't trying to, to cross a border uh, because the, the, the instruments of control actually don't just sit at the border, they sit well inside the border. It means that if you're um, suspected of being an immigrant, you might be stopped. But if you're suspected of associating with or connecting with someone who's of immigrant status, you will be stopped. And I think the, the, the takeaway here is that the more fully you try to exercise this control, then the higher the risk and the greater the extent to which you have to control um, your own citizens. Now, um, I could go on at much greater depth about this, but I think this is the main point that I want to, to make. Let me turn then quickly to say something about the most obvious response to make to this, uh, um, this argument, and that is that it's all worth it. Uh, we need to do this and we must you know, pay this, uh, this price because it will be economically damaging for us if we don't. Um, we will undermine our cultures if we don't, uh, and ultimately we'll lose the right uh, or the capacity for self-determination unless we control immigration. I'll deal very, very quickly with the, um, the economic arguments because I think these are the, the least convincing. It simply isn't true that immigrants have the, um, the, 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 the bad effects that that people claim. And you know, while economists disagree about a lot of things, this is one thing on which they're, they're, they're pretty well um, agree, in agreement. Um, there will always be cases, of course, that you can find where someone does worse as a result of a competition with immigrants. Um, I myself have put many natives out of work by traveling around the world and taking jobs from Americans, from Brits, uh, and now from poor old Singaporeans. Um, but at the same time, I, I like to think, and I know this is the case of, uh, of, of other uh, immigrants, they're only employed 
high because they generate something that ultimately um, strengthens an economy, opens up opportunities for others. Um, and I think, again, this is simply well established in the in the economics uh, in, in the economics literature. One aspect of the economic guidance that deserves a little bit more attention is the fact that um, although the advantages of immigration um, are extensive, for some people, it's too much to, <clears throat> to accept because there is a portion of society that does worse out of immigration. And I think that may well be the case that those who are, let's say, you know, college dropouts may find it tougher to compete with uh, incoming immigrants. Uh, and actually the people who find it toughest are the previous generation of, of immigrants. I think the second category maybe has less of a gripe since they were themselves in that position. But even for those who are otherwise um, poorest off, um, the extent to which they do poorly, I think has been exaggerated. And it's also an argument that can only work if you take a very small time slice and say, well, look at this particular generation of the, uh, the worst off. But if you think of it over generations, if you think about the fact that you want to protect the interests of natives, however you define them, um, unless you decide to take into account only the interest of your current worst off natives, rather than natives in the generations to come as well, it's very difficult to sustain this argument that immigration control is necessary to effect a better economic distribution uh, in a society. But what about the, the cultural argument? Um, the argument here is that unless we control immigration, our culture um, will, be, will be undermined by the influx of people who don't share um, the, the values of the, of the society. Um, now, I think there are a couple of uh, problems with, with, this, uh, with this argument. Most obviously, um, it assumes that there is, in fact, a uh, coherent and uh, in some sense, unified culture in a society. Um, this may be the case in a few very, very small countries, but in countries like Britain or the United States or the countries of, uh, of Western Europe generally, and indeed in, I think, most parts of the world, <clears throat> there's already sufficient diversity, um, whether because of immigration or before there was ever um, significant immigration, there's already sufficient diversity that you might be able to, um, you know, claim that there is some kind of cultural unity only at the expense of some people within your society by saying they aren't actually fully culturally on board. Now, if you want to make that argument, you could, but you were doing it at the expense of many of your own citizens and probably opening up uh, a further culture war. Now, you could respond to this by saying, well, actually, that's not true. Our culture is actually pretty capacious. It can encompass quite a diversity of people. Well, if that's the case, then it seems to me you don't actually have an argument then for, for immigration control because the society is already um, diverse, in which case admitting more people that might you know, make it even more diverse too does not on the face of it look like a particular problem. But the other difficulty here is that 
if you really think that you need to maintain some sort of cultural integrity by controlling immigration, then what you have to admit is that you've got to control immigration by being selective. I mean, you could do it by just ending all immigration, but there's no country in the world that really wants to do that because you know they need the workers. Uh, well, if you decide to be selective, then you're going to have to make some decisions about who to include and who to exclude. Often this will be on the grounds of religion or race or some other category, which would mean that ultimately you'll be saying to some of your fellow citizens who belong to those excluded categories that we will regard you as actually not equivalent citizens to those who are among the elect. And I think no <clears throat> liberal democratic society really wants to do that. And I would think that most other societies themselves would not want to do, do that, even though there may be significant minorities who think that somehow they are better representative of the real country who actually want to do this. Well, what about then the, the argument from self-determination? <clears throat> so here the argument is that we need to control immigration because our society is our home and we should get to decide who comes in and who stays out. Another analogy that's, that's often uh, used is the analogy of a family to say that we are a family and we decide who joins the family and who's, who does not. Now, the, the analogies themselves aren't really um, uh, ideal for the purposes to which you know, the advocates of control want to put them because they actually just don't make much sense. I mean, the idea that we're all a family is, uh, I think, on the whole, implausible. But even if you thought of uh, a country as a family, uh, I don't know what kind of family some of these arguments uh, are resting on, but families in, on the whole are very diverse. They come in all kinds of sizes, and not many people have much choice about who joins them, about who marries into the family, and who doesn't, um, you know, who reshapes it. And once you think of a family as an extended family, well, the analogy breaks down completely. But you could say, no, this is our home and we need to control who comes into our home. Now, here I think the problem is that the argument would work fine if your home was just a single occupant household and you were the boss. Okay, unless the building was burning and, you know, I don't think you should have a choice about whether the fireman breaks down the door and starts putting out the flames. Um, but let's say the family in question or the home in question is a two-person home. I think you should probably ask your partner, you know, um, what he or she thinks before you invite someone home. But he or she should probably also be, you know, reasonable about this because you won't have a happy home otherwise. Everyone needs to have a bit of a say. Okay? But now once you start thinking of the, of the home as something more extensive, let's say that it's... Uh, a group house, and most of us as students, we've probably shared a house at some point. Uh, now, we, we know that things will go better if we don't give everyone a veto on who is allowed to come in as a visitor, or even ask for a, you know, for a vote on who is and who isn't allowed to come in. Um, now, if you extend this to thinking about the, the home as a, as a condominium, um, multiple families, if you try to run this on the basis of everyone having a veto or everyone getting a vote, the whole thing will quickly break down. In part, it will become an unpleasant place to live, but actually what's more likely to happen 
is that the, the rule will be honored in the breach. You know, people will break the rules all the time. People may even hire, you know, illegal cleaners who would have thunk. Um, so it's simply unsustainable, even at the level of a condominium, although some condos, I do admit, have very strict rules. Um, but now think of it in terms of the home being your neighborhood. Well, now it becomes impossible. And this ultimately is why, you know, controlling national borders is so difficult because there are so many people within this home who actually want to have their own friends, their own visitors, their own employees coming in from all over the place, including from other parts of the world. To the extent that they want self-determination, they want the determination to be done by themselves, not by the selves that some other set of people have told them is the real collective that is the decision maker. Um, so the self-determination argument only gets off the ground if you're willing to concede to some particular group, the authority to determine who may and who may not associate with you. And my question is, why would you want that? And why would you even call this self-determination? So for all these reasons, I think um, as members of society that are potentially welcoming of uh, outsiders, societies that are full of people who want to associate with others uh, and who want the freedom to continue to do so, we should be looking to, at ways to make this possible rather than to make it more difficult. And all the effect, uh, efforts that we take um, to make it more difficult for people to associate with outsiders doesn't bring about the kind of unity that the advocates of self-determination uh, suggest. Actually, what it is is simply profoundly divisive. Now, I don't want to deny that immigration itself can be divisive, but I simply want to make the point that trying to control immigration is not going to solve that particular problem. And to the extent that that's a problem that you want to address, um, you'd better find a better mechanism than the very, very clumsy tool of immigration control. I think I, I'll leave it there and uh, turn it over to uh, to the rest of the, the panel. So uh, uh, I just want to start by saying I, I really thought this was a fantastic book. This is one of the best books I've, I've read in, in quite some time, actually. And uh, my initial uh, read of it, I was worried about what I would end up saying here. Uh, without just saying, oh, I agree with this chapter, I agree with this chapter. So uh, that sounds was, pretty good. <laughs> so I, I wanted to uh, uh, pull back a little bit, think about uh, the project, and then uh, I have kind of a, uh, a theoretical set of questions, I guess, and then uh, uh, a, a sort of practical uh, uh, example, uh, given that I live in a uh, in a certain kind of a border town anyway, uh, such that immigration is, is uh, and free flow of people is a, is a big deal for where I live. So, uh, uh, as I said, I think this is a really marvelous book. And I think that uh, it's incredibly valuable to recenter the debate around immigration uh, on the idea of freedom and uh, both considering uh, freedom of, of immigrants themselves and uh, also freedom of the, you know, the, the existing members of a, a particular society, what, uh, what immigration restrictions do 
to liberal freedoms more broadly. I think this is a, a really powerful idea. And uh, to me, the most intriguing idea in this book is, is that immigration isn't so much a matter of, of border control, but of uh, classification. And I thought this was really just beautifully thought through uh, the degree to which uh, one, I think the, the kind of fascinating history of the look of different forms of classification, the immense variety of ways of thinking about members versus non-members, the way you can lose your membership or gain it. Uh, I thought that was incredibly well done. And I think it's uh, quite clear that uh, it's really easy to slip into a mode of classification where we quickly establish different grades of citizen, uh, even among citizens, uh, if we have this kind of method of immigration control, especially in more modern states, uh, the degree to which the kind of controls of the border have seeped into all aspects of life, whether it's you know school or uh, jobs or you know uh, uh, purchasing property or or making contracts with others, uh, the way in which this classification seeps into everything. Uh, not only clearly inhibits freedom, but also just imposes non-trivial costs uh, of, of a variety of sorts. And I think that's uh, a really important contribution to this discussion. Uh, so uh, I thought that was uh, uh, really fascinating. And one of the things that I thought kind of uh, falls out of that is, you know, this discussion of the economics of immigration. Uh, uh, here's where I thought, Chandran is kind of uh, breaking the least amount of ground, as he said. In the, there's so much agreement amongst economists that you know immigration really just doesn't have very many costs, except for as as uh, Chandra mentioned, uh, the last round of immigrants to come in, uh, and perhaps uh, in a short time period anyway, the least uh, uh, skilled uh, individuals closest to where the flows of immigrants are coming in. Though there's evidence of upskilling later on, so I, I thought that uh, that discussion of, of uh, the economy was was valuable. But I think what uh, Chandran hasn't already mentioned that I thought was really important in the discussion is uh, uh, noticing the degree to which uh, a lot of the economic arguments purporting to show some harm uh, of immigration rely on kind of very static models of the economy where they're using something more like a Cobb-Douglas production function with you know, fixed capital and just an influx of, of labor, rather than thinking of immigrants not merely as hands, but as brains as well. Uh, and uh, the capacity for innovation, for generating new kinds of uh, productive uh, capacities, increasing uh, the, the extent of markets, et cetera. So I think uh, it's really easy to see why uh, 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 immigrants uh, can add a tremendous amount to an economy uh, and uh, the controls are just a whole series of drags on the economy. The expense, I was just thinking about my own university, the number of people that we have to employ to handle all the different visa situations of our students and all of even, uh, and even for people from Buffalo, all of the visa situations of trying to do study abroad or work with uh, uh, professors of their universities as part of a bigger project, et cetera. 
the, the amount of extra steps that we have to take, the amount of extra people that we have to devote to what's essentially a deadweight loss of not doing the mission of the university uh, is tremendous. Uh, and that's just one small part uh, of, of a, a culture or an economy. And this got me thinking about, about just Buffalo, New York, a little bit more broadly, namely, uh, we're a, a border city. I, I can't see Canada from my house, but I see Canada on the way to work. Uh, and uh, Buffalo uh, is on the border with a friendly country that is very rich with a bigger welfare state than ours, uh, with a very well-educated populace and all this kind of stuff. And yet in my lifetime, border restrictions have increased rather than decreased. When I was uh, younger, you could cross over with a driver's license. Uh, and uh, it was more just a matter of getting waved through. Uh, now I have like a Nexus card with biometric information uh, and all this just so I can cross over. And because uh, when I initially got that with, with my uh, daughter who was you know, uh, a toddler at the time, the Nexus card doesn't even work because, you know, biometrics change for children. And so you still have to go through all the same process, even though I had to be interviewed by officials from both Canada and the United States to have the right to, you know, travel 10 minutes. Uh, uh, but, you know, especially as COVID has highlighted, Buffalo took an enormous hit from a, a sharper close of the border. Uh, we're normally integrated with Toronto in a, in a reasonably robust sense. Uh, but I keep imagining what would it be like if we could be actually integrated, uh, where uh, you could have a, a train that uh, uh, runs between the two cities without a border control, uh, and goods could more freely flow, and people could live on one side and work in the other without uh, enormous extra uh, forms to fill out and and costs to bear, uh, everyone would just be richer. Uh, people would be able to take more advantage of, of cultural opportunities on both sides of the border, et cetera. And, uh, and it's not as if we have a serious risk of uh, uh, Canadians stealing our jobs in Buffalo or, uh, or, or whatever kind of uh, cultural worry you wanna have. We, we have a, a great deal of similarities on either side of the border. Uh, and yet this pervades our, our life. And indeed, uh, uh, even uh, all the way through the city of Buffalo and past in its, into its southern suburbs, we're technically in the border such that uh, I can be stopped by customs and border patrol anytime uh, they think my vehicle's suspicious. And uh, I'm under a whole extra set of uh, unfreedoms uh, because of the concern with our border with our largest trading partner who has been an ally of ours formally for a very long time. Uh, and this is just something that uh, we accept, even though it's kind of uh, obviously comes at significant cost to us. So a more theoretical point that I wanna raise comes in uh, the chapter on the state, which I thought was utterly fascinating. Uh, but uh, sort of more suggestive uh, in a certain kind of way. So I thought Shonda did a really fantastic job of, of looking at the different forms that states have taken through, uh, through time uh, and the way in which they interact with populations and 
uh, what the kind of persistence conditions of the state is, and uh, and all this. But what I saw and kind of hinting at is a, a kind of better way of conceiving of things, where we have a, a more amorphous population uh, uh, that's kind of setting rules for itself. I think this is uh, both fascinating and incredibly hard to think through uh, in terms of how we think about what a justified rule would be or an endorsed rule where uh, we have uh, an amorphous population. So I think you know folks like Rawls and 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 others uh, uh, start their theories by saying we have fixed populations. I think not so much because they're staking out ideal immigration policy, but they're staking out uh, a simplifying assumption for thinking through how to conceive of what uh, endorsing rules for yourself would look like. Uh, I agree that we should weaken or eliminate that simplifying assumption, but I think it's non-trivial to think through what that actually ends up meaning. If in time one, we're coming up with rules that in time two, we might not be subject to what others will be. Uh, and then in time three, we've reformulated, potentially reformulated those rules uh, to accommodate the, the shifts. Uh, I think it's really worth kind of analytically working out something like what, what this might look like. Uh, but I'm, I'm worried about kind of pulling in assumptions from a more stable environment into a more amorphous one and thinking about both what the costs and the benefits are uh, for conceiving of a state in this way that has a, a very uh, unspecified population. I think it's an exciting research project, but it's uh, I think it's a research project, not, not something that we have a good grip on. And this is similarly where I thought something in the discussion of, of, of culture is, is relevant. So I'm in total agreement with Chandran that uh, uh, we don't want to treat cultures like museums. It's not clear if there is a national culture in most settings or whether there, there ought to be. And in big diverse countries, there's certainly no central culture kind of conception. But I think thinking of culture in, in that richer sense uh, uh, overlooks uh, another aspect, which is sort of the baseline informal institutions that help prop up the formal ones. So some notion of, of kind of rule following or uh, or norms of tolerance or something like that that are kind of in the background that help support, say, some uh, method of rule of law. And I, uh, I'm i sure that there is a, a way of supporting uh, this with a robustly amorphous population, but I bet that there are likely some constraints with rates of change. So if I look at some of the work I've done in social norms and, and uh, in development context or something like this, it's very easy to find cases where like an exogenous shock uh, blows up a successful norm. So like uh, I, I've done a fair amount of work on you know sanitation type issues. And if there's like a typhoon afterwards, a lot of the previous established norms disappear because you've got a, a rapidly changing population from like, uh, people in uh, uh, displaced into uh, into refugee camps or something like this, and a lot of norms that were previously well established fall apart. Uh, I think we can see in the United States we are likely seeing a degrading of kind of core norms that we're doing all to ourselves, uh, and it might be that an influx of of immigrants would really help us. Uh, people that come in uh, 
uh, for the reason of thinking that we have a pretty good system of rules might help prop up that system of rules uh, in, a, in a valuable way that we've done a poor job of ourselves uh, kind of managing. Uh, but I think it's worth more explicit theoretical and experimental work on whether kind of rates of change matter here for the underlying population, especially if we think of social norms as being held in place by uh, mutual social expectations. Uh, if we're unsure what pe other people think uh, on some of these grounds, it's easy for us to give ourselves excuses to break the rules. Uh, and so here I think is where, you know, sympathetic uh, further work is, uh, would be valuable uh, to think through, to get a sense of uh, what, what might be possible. And then the last comment I wanted to make kind of uh, ties into these, these theoretical uh, interests of mine, namely, I think the, the powerful uh, line here is this idea of classification. And so if we uh, kind of take steps to make immigration vastly more open, say, you know, the United States decides it's going to let in five or 10 million people a year or introduce new classes of visas that are more permissive. Uh, and so we've, uh, uh, we still have some kind of immigration system in place, but it is uh, vastly more permissive. We still have all this classification work. Uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of left uncertain the degree to which we've enhanced our, our freedom. Uh, we have all these, uh, these unfreedoms baked into the, the scheme of control brought on by the classification. And so uh, it'd be really interesting to think through uh, from the perspective of adjusting immigration for the enhancement of liberty, uh, what, that, what that might look like and whether that's gonna favor certain kinds of policies like finding ways of elimination, classes of classification or classes of systems of control and whether that is entirely related to uh, uh, the, the pace at which uh, we allow people in or, uh, uh, or what. So what would be kind of like an improvement from here that we can register as, in the normal sense of more people uh, uh, can come and go. And also on the ground of uh, loosening the unfreedoms that are brought on by uh, the scheme of classification and control. But again, I, I thought it was a fantastic book and it's given me a lot to think about. Thanks, Ryan. I guess I'll jump in after you. Um, like you, I loved the book um, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to discuss it. I also want to say to Chandran, thank you very much for writing it, although I am really peeved that you made it look so easy when I know it represents a huge amount of effort and work. And I think the reason that it looks so easy is due in no small measure to the humour that's threaded through what is beautiful and erudite prose. I found it so easy to read because it was such a delightfully refreshing way of interrogating and overturning received wisdom. And I'm sure this is a much more productive way of engaging those who would defend immigration controls, not all of whom are fascist bastards. I thought that your respectful and thoughtful examination 
of opposing arguments and of the evidence on which they're based made their dismantling all the more devastating. But aside from the style and the compliments, what I found irresistible about the book was that it was so firmly rooted in the real world, or IRL, as my students have taught me to call it. Um, The arguments that are made are supported by serious amounts of data and evidence, as well as beautifully illustrative and sometimes amusing anecdotes. From the outset, the aim of the book was, as Chandra said himself, not to advance a set of solutions to immigration problems or to provide a blueprint for a world without borders. Instead, what for me was really important was that the reader, me, was invited to think through the current framing of immigration problems and the solutions to those problems that the framing appears to make inevitable. You don't mention Hannah Arendt in the book, um, Chandran, but actually she, for me, was there all the time. Thinking and judging, as she points out, are essential moral and democratic activities. So I think that your not just invitation, but provocation to think about immigration controls differently is a really important one, as are the challenges to the assumptions on which a lot of those immigration controls are based. I don't know if you remember, Chandra, because I I know that you've read a lot of Arendt, but in On Violence, she talks quite near the beginning of the essay about what she calls, I think, trust funders, but who I think of as bureaucrats, who develop a hypothesis and then without testing it, treat it as a fact, and then construct a whole series of similar facts on top of this truth, including policies and laws, forgetting the speculative nature of the whole enterprise. On this construct of nation states and the necessity of controlling borders are built added stories of further policies and laws in determined efforts to shore up this edifice. So the whole thing comes to rest on what is, after all, a fiction. And what I loved about the book was the way you unpicked these fictions which cause significant and unnecessary suffering, as you point out, to both citizens and non-citizens. The examples, as Ryan pointed out, provided um, from education resonate very, very strongly. Um, I am hugely resentful of the continued battle um, against monitoring uh, international students, but I have also been unable to act as an external examiner for any university in the UK because I find it offensive to be asked to produce my passport and prove that I have a right to work or that the right to work should depend on my migration status rather than my experience. But to come back a bit, the book is a forensic examination of the speculative nature of what is presented as essential, inevitable, and natural. As I've said, the nation state, nations themselves, the essential distinction between citizen and foreigner, and the necessity of controllable borders. While you don't deny the existence or the importance of these constructions um, and their importance to many people, I love the way that you teased out the absurd nature of some of these constructions and the fragility of those constructions, as well as the impact that they have. 
it felt very often as though you put your hands on a, a huge inverted pyramid of axiomatic truths and were quite gently but firmly rocking this pyramid. And I, I would just love to see it tumble over. In each chapter, you show how states produce immigration problems that are based on unjustified assumptions and then how the solutions that they propose to those problems create further problems, especially for the citizens. I would like to focus a little bit on the chapter on equality and in particular on, on race and equality. And that's because the events of the last nine months have really underlined the racism and inequality that are maintained, if not created, by immigration controls. And i just like to take a moment to highlight the hypocrisy that underlies justifications for immigration controls. You don't actually throw out the accusation of hypocrisy, but it's there. It's implicit throughout the book, and, and that's completely justifiable. I read the book, Chandran, uh, just after I got back from Afghanistan. I read it in the autumn, and it was a really exhausted, disappointed autumn in which I was full of bitterness and rage. In July and August last year, as I think you know, I found myself in Kabul, working inside the Ministry for Refugees and Repatriation, indirectly on the EU's payroll. And when the government fell, on the 15th of August and the evacuation began, the international community of states who were present in Kabul carved up the airport into fiefdoms and installed various desks in different buildings where clerks, mostly from the military, examined the paperwork of people trying to flee Afghanistan. For someone like me, white, middle-aged, middle-class, with language skills. <clears throat> I was really clear right from the outset that all I needed to do was to turn up at a gate and wave my EU passport, and I would be admitted to the airport. Having made it into the airport, I overheard somebody speaking French, realised it was a French attaché from the embassy, and said, I'm a French resident. Do you have a seat for me on tomorrow's plane? To which he replied simply, yes. No questions asked. I was airlifted to safety after two days and nights, and I spent those days and nights translating for Afghan families as British, Dutch, French and US soldiers processed thousands of men, women and children, the ones who'd made it through the Taliban checkpoints and through the crowds of similar desperate people all around the airport and through the foreign soldiers guarding the gates to the airport. These people lined up in front of representatives of the different states at these desks who asked for passports and visas. And your book was really important because it reminded me that amongst those people lining up were many Afghans with non-Afghan passports, Dutch, German, French, US, who had been visiting family in Kabul when the regime fell or who were doing business in Afghanistan or who had returned on a contract. And now they were standing in front of their co-citizens pleading to be allowed to bring members of their family back with them into Europe or the US. What astonished me in those first two days was how sometimes wives, children and elderly parents without any papers or with a single photocopy paper 
would be waved through onto aircraft. In the chaos that was Kabul Airport, some were flown to Europe with just a few hours stopover in a Gulf or Central Asian state. The point of this reminiscence, I'm sorry if I'm going on, is that immigration controls are not absolutely necessary. They can be waived and admitting countries will not be overwhelmed with terrorists, criminals or cheap competitive labour. For a moment in August last year, the possession of a European or US passport was sufficient to allow those Afghans to bring family members with them, even though those people didn't have papers. But incredibly quickly, in the days that followed, those openings quickly clanged shut. Family members and even EU and US passport holders have been left rotting on what has euphemistically been named lily pads in Albania, Uzbekistan, Qatar. Others remain in Afghanistan because they're unable to leave family members behind. They don't trust that if they leave, they will be able to bring their families with them. In the hours and days and weeks following my return to Paris, home became the HQ of Afghan friends and fictive family, some with French passports or residence permits. And we spent days and nights telephoning, emailing to find only recorded messages or automatic replies. Your email has been received. You will receive a response shortly. Please do not email again. In one case, demanding that the members of the EU delegation assist those Afghan government officials with whom they had been working for years, the response was, we can't do anything. We are not a state. Once again, visas, biometric ID cards, passports, letters of recommendation, employment contracts, threat letters from the Taliban were demanded before visas would be issued. All the while, these governments saying we are behaving generously, we are making huge efforts to bring people out. This is extraordinary. The pleas from friends and colleagues in Afghanistan continue today, though many have now fallen silent. Not a week goes by when I don't receive an email or a message asking for help, asking for a letter of recommendation or to chase an application or to write a report on conditions to justify an application for family reunification not just from those in Afghanistan, but from family members in the Europe, in Europe and in the US. And for the most part, I am imp impotent. So returning from Paris to London some weeks ago, I experienced a physical shock that literally stopped my breath when the doors from the Eurostar terminal opened onto the St Pancras station concourse. Arrivals from France were greeted <clears throat> by Ukrainian flags, trestle tables, posters saying welcome, and a team of local authority workers ready to welcome Ukrainians, allocate them accommodation, help them to find their feet and to feel safe and protected. The national government is justifiably criticized by friends and family members of Ukrainians. Of the 86,000 visas issued in the past six weeks, only 27,000 people have actually been able to arrive in the UK to the frustration of those waiting for them. But that's twice as many as the number of Afghans admitted in the last nine months. Clearly, the UK government is not doing enough for Ukrainians, but it is doing so much more than it did for Afghans, for Syrians, for Yemenis and for Eritreans. And other countries are doing far more than the UK, with some offering free public transport, access to employment, healthcare, education, and groups of private citizens opening their homes and raising funds. 
I've never seen anything like it in 30 years of working on migration. Those tied to Afghans and other groups look on in astonishment and resentment as the arguments put forward defending restrictions just fall away. Stories abound of some groups being moved to make room for Ukrainians. I've seen it in France. Most recently in Denmark, Parliament agreed to exempt Ukrainians from a 2018 anti-ghetto law that prevented non-Westerners from moving to areas designated as ghettos, including non-Westerners who are Danish citizens, so that black or brown Danes are being displaced to make room for white foreigners. The insistence on controlling borders feeds inequality and breeds racism. I think, Chandran, you made this point, but it could be even stronger. But it's not just about racial inequality. Obvious, too, is the inequality between those who have access to resources, including contacts. For those of us trying to facilitate the exit or entry of Afghans, it was really clear that unless we or they had suitable contacts, we were of little or no use to those in need. To conclude, while I think, I'm sure, Immigration and Freedom is a hugely important book, especially now and for the reasons I've outlined, I'm really pessimistic about the impact that such a work can have. As you yourself noted, Chandran, there's ample evidence to undermine the economic case against migration controls but that doesn't convince their defenders. It's a political choice. 30 years ago, I argued that states were engaged in an unwinnable war to control their borders, a war that they couldn't win, but that they couldn't cede. States as they are, as we have constructed them, must behave as they do. If we want them to behave differently, then we need to fundamentally rethink how we wish to govern ourselves. Immigration and freedom details repeatedly a failure to hold states to account for the injustices and infringements of liberty imposed on citizens and foreigners. Arendt defines tyranny as the government that is not held to give account of itself and warns that such tyranny is liable to provoke rebellion. She goes on to note that if we inquire historically into the causes that are likely to transform engagé into enragé, it's not injustice that ranks first, but hypocrisy. I think Chandran, your book does a wonderful job of revealing that hypocrisy. And thank you for that. I'll start by uh, more briefly than I was planning, but repeating some of the um, really positive things that uh, Ryan and Lisa have been uh, I've been sharing. I also think this is a really important book. Um, it's one of my favorite books I've read in a while. Um, I think, actually, I mean, I'm not saying that because we're here. I actually mean that I've been recommending it to people. One of the things I really, I like two things really about it. One is how it's, it's got its sort of feet in the mud of the, of the actual practice of immigration. So this is not just philosophy of principles and abstract theory. You, it discusses a lot of actual cases, it shows to us what the practice of immigration control looks like, how it affects people on a day-to-day basis. Um, and it's a, in that sense, puts a human face on what is otherwise a pretty abstract sort of story about other people who we don't really see. And I think that's really powerful. 
the other thing I think is really strong about the book is just how um, how modest, in a way, the basic assumptions or principles are that it appeals to. So you don't have to believe in sort of unlimited free, freedom of movement or libertarianism, which are kind of things that I believe in, but few people do. <laughs> what you need to care about, Chandran argues, is you know, a society that treats people in this way um, really is threatening its own people. It's maybe threatening its soul as a society that is free or liberal. Um, and so if you, you just have to care about some sort of basic decency and respect for each other, in order to get in, get engaged or exercised by the, by the argument here, and that's a kind of turning or um, changing of the argument or the debate. I think that's really pretty powerful, and I haven't seen before. So, All right. So that's the praise out of full frontal assault. And <laughs> well, not quite. I, mean, I don't have an, an argument that's going to say like this is a major problem with the book. But I did have want to raise one question that I think doesn't get as much attention in the book as maybe it might have. Um, and this is the question that I think is the most pressing question today for people who, like, like me, um, are very sympathetic to the position that Chandran outlines. Um, I'm not sure it's a convincing argument, but I think it's something that deserves our attention. Um, so this argument is an argument for restricting immigration. It's particularly popular, I think, today in Europe, um, more so than in, the, than in the United States. Anyway, but the argument holds that immigration is uh, worrisome because it, it can threaten our basic liberal values. These are values like freedom of expression, freedom of religion, gender equality, etc. Now, often this argument focuses on immigration from particular places. In Europe, the focus, the target is or tends to usually be Islamic Middle Eastern countries. Um, and I'm just going to restate the worry here. I'm not endorsing this, but this is the worry as I see the proponents make it. It's like these are societies in which there is just simply no broad popular support for liberal values, for things like freedom of expression, freedom of religion, gender equality. And here the argument goes on, says, well, the health of a liberal society like ours requires that there is such a popular support among our people. And so here comes the worry is that we're importing people who don't support it in a society that needs that kind of support to maintain the kind of freedom that we have. And so we're really in danger of losing the rights and the freedoms, the liberties, the values of basic liberal society. Now that's the argument. Um, I think it's an important argument to consider for a couple reasons. One is, I think we should be worried about it. If it's true, it's a big if, but if it's true, um, then it would have a kind of power that I think some of the arguments that you discuss in the book, Chandran, don't quite have. This is not a claim about the importance of protecting a certain culture, a sh shared um, identity or something, etc take those arguments, and I agree with you, to be not powerful enough to justify the kind of stuff that we're really talking about here. However, if immigration really is a threat to people's freedom, our ability to live as free and equal persons, period, well, then it does reach to the level that we might start thinking about justifying people's freedom. We do this all the time, right? When we monitor um, terrorist organizations, 
when we restrict people who try to storm the Capitol building, etc. So at least in principle, it's this is the kind of worry that might might reach to the level of justifying the kind of state coercion that we're talking about. And this is a, actually the second reason why we should care. So that the argument here might actually avoid some of your uh, objections in the book. Doesn't rely on a sort of overly romantic idea of culture, um, other than that there is broad support or allegiance to the political system under which we live. And it might not lead to treating citizens and immigrants in ways that we really think are unacceptable, at least if you think that sort of we can uh, have certain measures in place to protect basic, basic individual rights and freedoms. It's no unjustified imposition to ask people today to not undermine our constitution, political freedoms, equality before the law. And so then it might also mean that restricting immigration in the name of those values is also acceptable. So that's why I think sort of the worry um, is here. Now the book discuss, comes close to discussing this in two places as far as I could see. Um, one is in there what you call the culture argument. Um, so there the book mentions the question of whether Im immigration might threaten things like uh, value, the value of gender equality. This is on page 173 for those who are reading along. Um, but then the book doesn't really return to that question and rather just starts talking about the culture argument in a more broader sense. And the second place that comes close is where um, the book asks if immigrants will undercut support to the free market. Now, Deir Sandrin offers a pretty compelling argument, I think, for why we don't need to worry about it, noting, I think correctly, that there really is not much evidence at all to think that immigrants reject the free market. But then we might wonder, so what about this pretty popular, at least in, in Europe, argument that we should worry about the commitment to liberal values more broadly, not just the free market, but the political values, freedom of expression, gender equality, freedom of religion, those kind of things. So I can see three ways that you might respond. Um, one would be the same as that we, as that Chandra response to the free market worry. So that's basically saying the empirical claim here is false. So immigration actually does not threaten these values. Um, maybe because uh, the people who come here, they come in with illiberal values, but they assimilate really quickly. And so their values change once they come from illiberal um, Egypt. I'm just picking a random country at this point. No, no, I'll take that. I'm Dutch. So in Holland, target is always Morocco. We'll just go with that. They come from illiberal Morocco. Again, I'm just restating the, the argument here. And they come to liberal Holland and they assimilate really quickly. So they become good liberal Dutch citizens. Yeah, that's one argument. Right? Perhaps there's something else. Maybe there's a selection effect so that the people who leave a liberal Morocco are actually the people who don't share the liberal values of Morocco and are actually the liberal minded ones who come to Holland. That could be another. Anyway, there's several arguments that could be made here, but that would be one response. The actual the empirical claim here is just not true. There's no threat. No threat to the cultural support, the norms of liberal society. The second response would be so actually, the empirical claim is true that immigration does erode sort of the cultural support of the norms of liberal society. But the mechanism here that is suggested is just not in play, meaning we don't really need broad popular support for, these, uh, for this kind of society. 
maybe you think it has to do some it's something that has to do with institutions, not with culture or something. Perhaps some other reason. But that would be the second and that second way of responding. The third way to respond would be say, yeah, it's true, it's a real threat, the mechanism is in place, but there is some overarching moral objection. The freedom is just so important, we can't do anything about it. So let's just hold our noses and uh, forge forward. Now I think the second and the third answers here are not particularly compelling. The second being, yeah, the empirical claim is true, but the mechanism isn't real. Strikes me as pretty implausible. Um, I tend to think that IDs matter as do cultural norms. And so I'm sure that if we import people with illiberal views, that doesn't spell the immediate demise of our liberal and free society. But over time, this might be a pretty dangerous game to play. The third answer, yes, it's a problem, but our hands are tied for moral reasons, also strikes me as implausible. Again, assuming that this really is going to happen, that would mean that freedom and liberal theory are like a this is how Rishi Yoshi puts it, um, a suicide pact. It's just like to be committed to freedom means that you can't do anything to defend it. That sounds pretty weird. Um, so I'm guessing that there were that there that what's really going on here um, is that Chandran suspects that the empirical assumption here, i.e., that immigration means importing illiberal values into a liberal society, that this empirical assumption is just false. That's not what's going on um, when we open up our borders more to immigrants, at least from these places. At least it has to be false, right? If we are, people like me are going to keep our pro-immigration stance. So um, this is really the question I would like to note. <laughs> Does Chandran, do you think that the empirical claim is false? And if so, do you see evidence um, for that? Because if we're being... Um, we're giving our opponent here the strongest possible case, we have to admit that there is some evidence to the contrary, that there is some evidence for this empirical claim being true. Now, much of this is anecdotal evidence, but still there are stuff. Stories, again, I'm growing mostly here in Europe, of sexual assault uh, rates spiking in places with large numbers of immigrants, especially from these countries. Uh, stories like a couple of years ago of a French school teacher being beheaded for showing a cartoon of the prophet in, in a class on free speech. Crime rates among mig migrants being relatively high to compare to native populations, these kind of things. But that kind of evidence, of, evidence, of course, can be very misleading. I know this. Um, I've seen at least some studies that try to correct in things like crime rates um, for things like socioeconomic background and age. And once you do that, the higher rates basically pretty much dissipate. Um, but still, um, I wonder if that's really, if that's really is, is going to be the answer. Is that well, it's just not. This is this is a confused uh, objection. Another type of response might be um, just to point out that immigrants are a mixed bag. Some of them are going to have liberal values. Many of them are liberal liberal values. And by the way, our own native populations aren't so cute either. Um, I see, you know, lots of rejections of liberal values among native Western people. Um, this includes people who are socially, economically worse off classes, um, who seem to reject basic democratic procedures at times. 
I also see uh, rejections of freedom, very different rejections, but still rejections of freedom by our intellectual elites, like the people that surround me in universities. So maybe that's the story. Actually, what we're importing is better than what we have. Anyway, the question still strikes me as a real one, and I think it's an important one. So I wonder what Chandran has to say about it. Uh, because I think without a good and reasoned response, we're still not quite in the place where we could put the final nail in the coffin of the anti-immigration argument. Sure. Uh, first, get thanks everyone for um, for the praise. That's uh, very welcome. Take it whenever I can get it, but uh, but also for the uh, uh, for the thought you've you've put into the into the comments. I, I might start with Bass because. Um, uh, it's it's not only the, uh, the 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 most substantial challenge that's been uh, raised here, although uh, admittedly it's best playing uh, uh, devil's advocate, but it's also something that I've been thinking about, and, and others have uh, have mentioned to me. So uh, I, I think the the quick answer I would give is um, you know when confronted with this uh, um, these these three options. I would actually go for all three in that, uh, firstly, I, th I think that the empirical claims about the um, ill effects of immigration, as far as uh, the political culture is concerned, um, are, if not false, at least um, unsupported by any evidence. And people have said this sort of stuff uh, all the time, um, but it's, you know, to, to sustain this argument, you need to do more than just find cases where things haven't worked out. Because in, in you know, in any human society, things often don't work out. And there are always, you know, a multiplicity of causes that might be, you know, might be identified as contributing. Okay? But that's not enough to establish something. Um, I mean, in, in the same way that, you know, I've for decades heard people say, well, you know, we know that different cultures can't coexist. Look at the, uh, look at the Balkans. Okay? Um, well, that doesn't really tell you very much because they may have had 500 years of peace and then, you know, 30 years of war here and 30 years of war there. Why are you drawing one conclusion rather than another? And equally, we know lots of cases where there are homogeneous societies where they actually don't get on all that well. So, you know, you, you need a better kind of argument to, to draw that, that inference. Similarly with, uh, with, with immigration, you know, if you're going to say that uh, there's a danger that immigrants will undermine uh, a political culture and make it difficult for these institutions to survive, just finding examples where that's true is not enough, particularly if you find examples where it's false. Uh, and that's certainly the case because there are lots of societies um, which are very, very diverse, have admitted huge numbers of immigration immigrants in very short order, and you know things have been fine. Um, the The example I do give in the book, or I do it really in the economic context rather than in the political one, and I mentioned the political case only um, in passing, is the example of the absorption of uh, East Germany into a new Germany. I should thank Lisa for that, Lisa for that for that example because she raised it, you know, years and years ago in conversation uh, with me, and it always stuck in my in my head. And so when I came to to write that particular bit of the book, 
I started going <laughs> researching on Germany and reading all these books and papers on, you know, reunification. And of course, she was completely borne out. And uh, um, but you know, it but it's not just in the economic uh, respect; it's also in the um, in the political respect. And so far as here, you here you really did absorb a large anti capitalist, uh, anti-liberal, anti-democratic populace that, you know, nonetheless, in collaboration with the uh, rest of Germany, made it work. Not perfectly, but, you know, things aren't perfect in the United States or Britain or Holland or Malaysia. Uh, so you, you've, got to, you've got to really establish that, you know, there's a much, much uh, uh, worse outcome than you're going to see that's not simply consistent with the vagaries of history. Um, uh, so the, the, the other option was, I think you said, uh, saying that immigration controls won't work. I, I think that was, you know, you concede the, uh, that the, uh, the problem is there, but this is the wrong tool. Is that, is that the argument that you, you mentioned, the second argument? No, no. Um... I guess that would have been the fourth. Um, I didn't consider that one. The second one was to say, no, um, actually, the people that are coming in don't share support for liberal freedom. Ah, okay. Oh, we don't. We we don't need support for <laughs> for liberal freedom. Like it's just more institutions are so sticky or something like that. Yeah, um, I guess there also. You know, I I want to um, to accept that because you know once again I think here what we have is a matter of degree. Okay. I mean, it would be odd to to find that everybody um, accepts um, you know, the, the, the plethora of liberal freedoms, uh, not least because you know I know lots of American conservatives who are quite vigorously against you know liberal democratic uh, norms, definitely against liberal norms, which they think are you know, undermining of uh, of uh, of a democracy. So it wouldn't be unusual to find this in um, in you know uh, in immigrants moving, but I think the the evidence is that you get you know people of all kinds of uh, views uh, moving. So again, I think you'd have to find the evidence to show that somehow this is a, a deep concern. Uh, I I think it also maybe you know um, neglects to to consider the extent to which um, the you know the, the the parts of the liberal uh, idea that makes sense um, don't make sense for cultural reasons. They make sense because there are good moral arguments for uh, for them. That is to say, you know, you should allow people to to speak freely. You should allow people to go their different ways because we know people are different. You know, and most of these norms are not um, uh, weird to people in other parts of the world. Of course, there are disagreements, and there are different ways in which they, um, um, you know, they identify the, the things over which to to quarrel and disagree. But you know, there isn't um, such a, a divide among people in the world ethically that you know I would be worried about a, an influx of extremely. Um, hostile people when it comes to the to the basic norms of a society. Um, and, um, you know, th th this is very striking when you look at some of the campaigns that uh, governments like Australia's have, Australia has run 
to try to dissuade people from coming, you know, campaigns um, to try to persuade them that actually, oddly, um, Australia is um, is a place where they won't be um, allowed to to go their own way, where they won't be able to live as they as they wish to cleave to their own norms. I mean, you know, Australia spent money in Indonesia and Iraq, you know, running campaigns to say, you know, if you come to this part of the world, your children won't respect you. Um, it's so contradictory because on the one hand, they're saying you can't live the way that, um, you know, that you want. And on the other hand, they're saying your children are going to turn into, you know, what, liberals. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a very, very weird kind of uh, argument to make, I think. And then the last one, actually, I, I do embrace because I, I, you know, I think it would be optimistic to things that things uh, could never change for the worse. Um, I just don't think that immigration is uh, a particularly likely cause of this. Um, you know, the internal sources of a society's uh, destruction, I think, are probably always more significant because you know if they weren't there, outsiders aren't going to make much much different. But uh, you know, if you do believe in freedom, then I think you know you uh, you take that risk. I mean, you say, look, you know, we know that if people have freedom, they will do things differently than what you want. But that's what a free society is. I mean, it it has to be. So you know, you you can't reduce the uh, the risk to zero. Um, so the question is really, what level of risk do you want to take? I think in a way, liberal societies say, well, we'll take a pretty big risk because the alternative of uh, ratcheting up the control takes us in the wrong direction. You know? um, I mean, I think that's the reason why in the end, countries like Switzerland and you know, the, the Scandinavian countries, when it came to getting rid of the COVID restrictions, even though they paid a pretty high price in some ways, sort of said, well, you know, but we're a free society. Um, so yeah, we will take that that risk. Agree with it or not, I think, you know, I think to some extent we, we have to do that. Um, so let me say coming quickly then about what Lisa, Lisa and uh, Ryan um, you know, uh, had to say before turning it back to you. Um, I, I I could have said more about Arendt if I knew more about Arendt. Um, you know, I, I started teaching her just shortly before I left uh, uh, LSE because I'd never really uh, come to uh, terms with it. So, you know, although the ideas you're talking about are familiar, uh, I, I don't have enough of a grip on it. So, but, you know, maybe the advantage of that is that the, the text gets less cluttered up with uh, uh, with the works of other theorists. Uh, most of the time I allude to people rather than try to draw on them. One of my colleagues um, or commentators suggested that I should have used Foucault a lot more. Uh, and I do know Foucault much better, but I thought, you know, in the end, I don't want to write a book about Foucault. Um, and I don't want to squeeze this into um, a Foucauldian uh, argument or an Arendtian one. But if someone reads it and thinks, ah, a rent, then I think, you know, all to the good, because if there is that, that hook on which to, you know, hang um, a piece of argument or an inquiry, I think, you know, I, I think that's a, a good thing. On the, the racism issue, um, I think I could have said 
more about this. Um, you know, um, it just kind of got clearer and clearer to me as I as I wrote. And then, you know, I found my 50,000 word book, which eventually got a contract for 100,000 word turning into a 150,000 word book. And I thought, no, I, I can't expand this uh, any further. But I, I think there's there's certainly plenty of uh, uh, of of scope um, to do this. On your larger point, though, about rethinking the state, and I think this really goes to something that Ryan is getting at when, when he talks about the whole question of um, you know trying to understand immigration's impact on on social norms um, for better or for for worse. A lot of it comes back to how one thinks about the state. And um, to some extent, I've had to um, think about this issue within the confines of a framework that's set by not just, um, uh, you know, institutions and officials, but also by political theorists everywhere who take that as the the natural framing point, um, I you know I, I this is a bigger issue I want to address in a much larger book, and I've said on occasion that the title of that book would be the obliteration of civil society by the state, and its abetment by political philosophers everywhere, you know, um, because they all and, and this is the whole liberal tradition in a way, are all about explaining why the state is legitimate or political authority is legitimate. Uh, and I just don't think we need to do that. I just mean to say that we have some way of dissolving it or getting rid of it um, as if we could, even if we knew how. Um, uh, that's not the, the aim of the game, but why are we spending all this time trying to justify it? I can perfectly understand why political authority wants it justified because your legitimacy is crucial to your being able to uh, govern and also, to be clear, uh, distribute um, the uh, the spoils of government to your supporters and friends and so on. Okay, that's that's a part of the story. Why do we feel the need to justify this? It seems to me completely misplaced as an enterprise. Um, that includes social contract theory, which you know. Um, is kind of hell bent on this. Um, now that isn't to say we don't need to have some, you know, um, theoretical tools to try to explain the structures of the state, how they operate, why this is there is authority. But I, I just don't think it needs justification. You may need to justify particular policies, particular arguments. You may want to make a case for certain kinds of institutions, especially if you're a liberal and you're worried about how power might be contained, which I think is the, the critical thing from my point of view about you know, the, the liberal ideal. It's finding out how you contain you know, um, the power of the king, the power of the aristocracy, the power of the church, and the power of the here of the corporations, all of which are in contestation um, for you know the spoils of power. Um, but you don't need to justify any one of these things in order to do so. So once you start thinking about the state in the way that people do, of course, immigration starts to be examined in a way that makes it automatic that you ask. Well, you know, who do we let in and who do we do we not? 
who belongs and who doesn't, because you've got that framework. Um, now, writing about immigration that ignores this framework is very difficult. Um, I mean, I've I've written a different book called The Liberal Archipelago that explores this you know, idea in a very different way. Um, but um, to explore the, the question of immigration in the way that I wanted to, in the way that engaged with, uh, with policy uh, and practice and institutions and history, very difficult to, to not look at it in the framework of the state because after all, Immigration control is a creature of the state. If we didn't have states, we wouldn't have um, immigration control. We would just have migration. You know, we would just have people moving um, back and forth. So uh, th that answer is, you know, partly a, a promise of future work to come. Uh, but uh, as is the case with with this book, um, um, I have no idea where it will end up. All right, great. Well, thank you so much. Um, I think uh, this has been a great conversation and uh, everyone who's listening should go out and uh, obviously read Chandran's new book, Freedom and Immigration, but also check out the work of the incredible panelists that came and, and shared their thoughts today as well. Thank you all. And thank you all again, everyone. It's been, it's been great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.